want to preach to you from this subject. There is a remnant. There is a remnant. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your spirit that we feel in the room right now. And I pray that in this moment that no flesh would glory in your presence, God, that everything that happens in this room from this moment on would be from heaven. God, that you would move, that you would minister, that you would speak, that you would heal, that you would deliver, that you would set free in this room. God, I pray that you would bring it to our mind that we are a remnant. There is still a remnant in the earth. And God, like we always pray, I just pray tonight that your kingdom would come and God, that your will will be done. Everybody say in Jesus' name. Would you clap hands to the Lord one more time as you're seated? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you so much for your worship tonight. And I want to commend this music team and this worship team. They have been here for, from 4 p.m. onwards, some of them even earlier than that, preparing for youth explosions. So I give them high honor for their sacrifice of their time. There is a remnant. Look at your neighbor and say, there is a remnant. The concept and the principle of a remnant is woven throughout the pages of our Bible. A remnant is defined as a small surviving group of people. It is sometimes defined as something left over. At other times, it is defined as a leftover piece of fabric remaining from the rest that had been used up or sold. Throughout the course of history of mankind, God has always left a remnant. From the beginning, Israel had been God's elect nation, a nation who God foreknew and a nation that God selected to be his people, and he selected that, they selected him to be their God. In the days of the prophet Elijah, God let it be known that he had left a, rem, a remnant. According to 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah thought the nation of Israel had totally departed from God. But God informed Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, he said that he had left for himself 7,000 people who would still serve him and would still honor him. Those 7,000 in that point in history were God's remnant. It was Noah and his family, just a remnant of the people on the earth that were saved from the floodwaters. It was Lot and his two daughters, just a remnant of Sodom and Gomorrah that were saved from the destruction of those cities. It was just three Hebrew boys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a remnant among so many that said, we will not bow down and we will not worship the statue that you have put up. It was just a remnant. It was just a few people. In Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 6, we read about the 12 spies that Israel sent out to scope out the promised land, only to return with fear and doubt. But there was two. There was a remnant. There was a small portion of that group that believed that they could take the land that God had promised to them. Their names were Joshua and Caleb. Two men out of so many around them that doubted the promise of God. Elijah, he encountered a widow woman in 1 Kings chapter 17. All she had left was a handful of meal and a little bit of oil. But Elijah prophesied to her. She made a cake and the meal or the oil never ran out just as Elijah had said. Elisha met a widow woman also in 2 Kings chapter 4. And all that she had left was her pot of oil just a remnant, just a little bit remaining. And she poured that oil out into many vessels and it never ran out. It's the boy with the five loaves and the two fish in John chapter six. The disciples said, what is this among 
so many. What is this small portion, just a small lunch? What is this remnant among so many? Can I tell you tonight that God doesn't need a lot? God just needs a little to do a whole lot. God just needs a couple people that say, you know what? I'm not happy with that. I'm not satisfied with that. I'm going to pray against that. I'm going to fast that that diagnosis changes. God can do a whole lot with just a little. God can do a whole lot with a remnant. You can call this a sermon or a message if you want to tonight. It's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine before church this afternoon, and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just preparing to preach at church tonight. He doesn't go to church, and he said, oh, yeah, cool, and proceeded to talk for a few minutes, and he said, well, uh, I'll, I'll let you go. I'll, I'll let you go finish your, your speech or whatever you're doing. I said, okay. I said, I hope it's a lot more than a speech, but We'll see how it goes. But you can call this whatever you want tonight, but I've just come to declare one thing. There is still a remnant. There is still a remnant in the earth. You might get more excited about that in a minute. Now, during the days of the prophet Isaiah, God gave Isaiah a vision of Israel. The vision was told by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Isaiah said the nation had become a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord. They've provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger, and they are gone backward. Isaiah, he went on to say in verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. If you've read through the Old Testament, it really seems like a roller coaster ride with the nation of Israel because as you're going through, you'll read phrases and expressions that are all very similar to this, that Israel was doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. It feels like every page that you turn in your Bible in the Old Testament that Israel is doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Or sometimes it would just be the scripture referencing the king or leader that he was doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And if you read through the Old Testament, you can see this cycle repeat over and over and over. Israel does evil, and they repent, and then they turn back to God. Israel does evil, and a king does evil, but then they change their heart, and they repent, and they turn back to God. And we're going to spend the next few minutes in the book of Isaiah, chapter 10, because it reveals to us one of these moments in Israel, that where Assyria, the nation of Assyria, is persecuting and attacking Israel. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 to 19, reading in the New Living Translation. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 to 19. Isaiah speaking says, What sorrow awaits Assyria, the rod of my anger. I use it as a club to express my anger. I am sending Assyria against a godless nation, talking about the nation of Israel. Against the people with who I am angry, Assyria will plunder them, trampling them like dirt beneath its feet. But the king of Assyria will not understand that he is my tool. His mind doesn't work that way. He is planning simply to destroy, to cut down nation after nation. He will say, each of my princes will soon be a king. 
He'll go on to say, we destroyed Calno just as we uh, did Karshemish. Hamath fell before us as Arpad did. And we destroyed Samaria just as we did Damascus. Yes, we have finished off many a kingdom whose gods were greater than those in Jerusalem and Samaria. So we will defeat Jerusalem and her gods just as we destroyed Samaria with hers. Verse 12, after the Lord had used the king of Assyria to accomplish his purpose on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, he will turn against the king of Assyria and punish him, for he is proud and arrogant. He boasts, by my own powerful arm have I done this. With my own shrewd wisdom I have planned this out. I've broken down the defenses of nations and I've carried off their treasures. I've knocked down their kings like a bull. I've robbed their nests of riches and gathered up kingdoms as a farmer gathers eggs, making reference to how easy he feels that he has, it has been for him. No one can even flap a wing against me or utter a peep of protest. But then God steps in, in verse 15, and he says this, but can the axe boast greater than the person who uses it? Is the saw greater than the person who saws? Can a rod strike unless a hand moves it? Can a wooden cane walk by itself? Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies will send a plague among Assyria's proud troops, and a flaming fire will consume its glory. The Lord, the light of Israel, will be a fire. The Holy One will be a flame. He will devour the thorns and the briars with fire, burning up the enemy in a single night. The Lord will consume Assyria's glory like a fire consumes a forest in a fruitful land. It will waste away like sick people in a plague. Of all that glorious forest, only a few trees will survive so that a few children could count them. Assyria had been loosed by God. God had allowed Assyria to move in on the nation of Israel. He let him do what they wanted to do up to a certain point because God was punishing Israel for the sin and the rebellion that had crept in amongst their nation. And so God lets him loose, but at some point God says, I've got to rein you back in because I'm using this to afflict them, not to just make them weaker, but to make them stronger. But as the king of Assyria, he took it one step too far. And he said, you know what? I did this. This was all me. And God said, you're going to learn a lesson. Sometimes God will send what feels like affliction and what feels like persecution just to stir us up a little bit. That's what he did for Israel. He said, I'm letting him do this because you're a godless nation. You have turned away from me. And so here is the punishment of your actions. It's the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. But Isaiah chapter 10, verses 20 to 22, and I know that was a longer portion of Scripture that I just read. But the next verse, it says this. It says, in that day... The remnant left in Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer depend on allies who seek to destroy them. But they will faithfully trust the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, yes, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. But through the people of Israel, but though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sands of the seashore, only a remnant of them will return. The Lord has rightly decided this to destroy his people. There was 
among everything that was going on in the world around them, among everything that they were facing, among all of the persecution and the trial and the struggle, there was still a remnant in Israel. There was still a remnant that said, you know what? We're not going to turn our back on the law of God. We're still going to live for God and we're not going to fall to idolatry. There was still a remnant in Israel that said, we're not going to take on the customs of the world and the culture around us. There was still a remnant among everything that was going on that still served the one true living God. There was a remnant. Look at your neighbor say there was a remnant. There was a remnant, remnant that was still following the laws that God had given to them. There was still a remnant that desired to serve God. Yes, there was. It may have just been a few There could have been millions against them and only thousands in the remnant, but there was still a people that said, this is too valuable for me to let go of. This is too valuable for me to forsake. This is too valuable for me to turn away from. There was still a remnant. There was a remnant. Isaiah chapter 10 again, continuing on, skipping over a few verses. Verses 33 and 34. He said, but look, the Lord of heaven's armies will chop down the mighty tree of Assyria with great power. He will cut down the proud. That lofty tree will be brought down. He will cut down the forest trees with an axe. Lebanon will fall to the mighty one. And that's the last verse of Isaiah chapter 10. But when you turn the page, when you go to the next chapter in Isaiah chapter 11, the first verse says this, and this is amazing. God goes on to say, he says, out of the stump of David's family will grow just a shoot. Yes, it's just going to be a branch bearing fruit from an old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor. He will make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word. And one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In contrast to the proud trees that God said he would cut down in Isaiah chapter 10, he said, here, here is this small, feeble shoot. It's just a small branch right now, but it's going to rise up from the ashes. It's going to rise up from this dead stump. What looks like there's people not serving God and what's going on in the nation of Israel isn't going to be a reflection of what I want to do. There is something growing. Hallelujah. He said it's going to be a root, or it's going to come from a root. It's just going to be a tender, small branch at first, coming from what seems to be a dead stump. Isaiah, he looked beyond the current state of the world. He looked beyond the current state of Israel. He was speaking prophetically about the kingdom that would be established when the Messiah was born and when the Messiah would come to reign. David's dynasty was coming to an end, but out of his family... Out of that tree, in generations to come, 
Messiah would be born. Jesus would be born. And a godly remnant of Jews would be responsible for keeping the nation alive so that the Messiah could be born through that bloodline. Can I tell you tonight that if it wasn't for that remnant of the Old Testament, we wouldn't be here tonight. If it wasn't for that remnant that stood for something in a very different world, we wouldn't have the privilege that we have tonight to gather in a church there was a remnant that stood up. Hallelujah. There was a remnant. And if it wasn't for that remnant, if every one of them had just turned their back on the law of God and just walked away from what they had grown up in, Jesus would not have been born. The remnant of the Old Testament birthed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It took a remnant to produce salvation. It took a remnant to come to a lost world and say, hey, there's something more for you. It took a remnant. Would you lift your hands right now? I feel the Holy Ghost moving, and I've got more to preach. Worship you, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus. God, I pray that every heart and mind would be opened. God, that you would bring understanding in the room tonight. Hallelujah. We worship you, Jesus. But this concept of a remnant isn't just an Old Testament principle because it carries right on into the New Testament. There's a period called the 400 years of silence, of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament where no prophets spoke, but the remnant had done its job. The remnant had hung on long enough. The remnant had survived, and Jesus is born, and the remnant was carried forward from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The church is the remnant of the New Testament, a faithful group of believers who have not strayed, who haven't turned away, who haven't walked away, who haven't changed their mind. The church is the remnant that our world needs. And this church, the church that we're a part of today, this building, but also the global church, was founded on the teaching of Jesus. It was founded on the teaching of Jesus. And when he died and rose again and then ascended into heaven, it was carried onward by 12 disciples. And although they do take center stage for the majority of the New Testament and going through the Gospels in the book of Acts, there wasn't always 12 disciples. John chapter 6, just to give you some context, picking it up in verse 35 in just a moment. But Jesus, he's teaching to a large crowd. And in his teaching, he makes comments like this. You've probably read these before. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the crowd that gathered around, those that were following Jesus, lacked understanding. And so, when we skip over just a few verses to 41 and 42, we can see what their answer was to what Jesus was teaching and preaching. 
It says, then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this just Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father. We know his mother. How can he say, I came down from heaven? They didn't understand. And they didn't even ask him the question. They asked each other the question. And so Jesus He would continue to talk through, and he would say other statements like this in verse 50 of John chapter 6. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and this bread which I will offer so the world may live is my flesh. And again, in verse 52, the people began arguing with each other. Not with Jesus, but with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. Because they're taking what Jesus is saying so literal. And so Jesus, he just continues to explain what he's saying. Verses 58, continuing on, he says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, for they ate the manna. But anybody who eats this bread is going to live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many of his disciples, listen, many of his disciples, many. Look at your neighbor and say many. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. We don't get what Jesus is talking about. I can't comprehend this idea that he's bringing to us. How can anyone accept what he is saying? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? Verse 62, he says, then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again, the Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing in the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you don't believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who didn't believe, and he knew the one who would betray him. Then he said, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. At this point, Listen to this. At this point, this is John chapter 6, verses 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Many. Not a few, not a couple, not a handful, but many. And when I read many in this context and we go on to see that there's only 12 people left, I think that it was probably the majority that left. And so Jesus, he's, he's teaching and he's preaching and he's declaring the word of the Lord and giving them a glimpse and prophesying to them what's going to happen. But they couldn't understand it. They didn't want to listen to what Jesus was talking about. And many disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve. The twelve that remain, just the remnant of those that had been following him. Just a few people left over. And he said, are you also going to leave? He said, is this too hard for you to understand? 
Do you get what the big picture is? And Simon Peter, he replied, he said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. It went from many disciples. It went from many followers. It went from large crowds all the way down to just a remnant of 12 men. Just a few remain. Just a few desire to understand the word of the Lord more completely. It was hard teaching. They couldn't comprehend and understand what Jesus was saying to them. It sounds disgusting if you're taking it literally. Talking about drinking of my blood and eating of my flesh. I understand why they were confused. But they didn't ask Jesus. They didn't go to Jesus with their questions. They would just murmur and argue amongst themselves and say, you know what, this is just too hard for me to grab a hold of. It was too hard for them to understand what Jesus was trying to say. And because it was hard, they left They stopped following Jesus because of his teaching because they just couldn't grab a hold of the big picture. And can I tell you tonight that the same thing happens today, that when we go through the word of God and when we read the pages of our Bible, I can tell you that, yes, there are some hard things in there. Yes, there are some things that can be challenging, things that will convict us to live differently But can I tell you that when we run into those scriptures and when we hear those sermons, the answer is not to turn away and just go and live how we want to live, but the answer is to go to God and say, God, what are you trying to say to me? But there was just a remnant that desired to follow Jesus and understand the word of God fully. It was just 12 disciples 12 disciples. It was all that was left after the crowds and the multitudes and and the groups that formed around him. And that group of 12 ushered in the New Testament revival that we read about in the book of Acts and that we get to experience today. There was still a remnant that desired the presence of of God. There was still a remnant that was seeking after moments and time spent with Jesus, these 12 disciples. But one day, obviously, he goes to the cross and he dies and he rises again and ascends into heaven. And here are the 12. And he told them, he said, go and wait for the promise. Go tarry and wait for what I'm going to pour out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I've preached this before, verses 4 to 6, it says, He was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve after that. He was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And so Jesus, after his resurrection, was seen by 500 people. Maybe it wasn't all at once. We don't necessarily know for sure. It could have been 10 here and 10 there, but what we do know for sure is that there was 500 people that after Jesus was risen from the dead, saw him walking and talking and teaching and preaching and eating. 500. But then when we go to the book of Acts and we see what Jesus said as he was ascending and he said, go wait for the promise of the Father. Acts chapter 1 verse 15 says this, during this time when about 100, 
and 20 believers were together in one place. Peter stood up and addressed them. And this is the beginning. This is the culmination of the book of Acts in the New Testament church. 500 people had physically seen Jesus. Many had been commanded to go to Jerusalem to wait for the promise. Many. Many had heard. I mean, there was 500 people that saw him, but I believe that there would have been thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that heard the rumor that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. It would have spread like wildfire through the community. People probably thought that they saw him and weren't sure and second-guessed themselves, but we know there was 500, but I believe that there was thousands that had heard that Jesus was risen. But when we go to the book of Acts, and we read what we just read in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, we can come back to the music tonight, that there was, yes, 500 But of that 500, of the thousands that might have heard that Jesus was risen from the dead, mind-blowing news, some would have for sure doubted, there was 120 people that showed up to the upper room. There was 120 people, and I know that I've preached this, and I know that I've said this before, but as I was preparing, I couldn't get this out of my spirit, that there was 120 people that were hungry for more. There was a remnant of his followers that were hungry for something greater. There was 120 people that desired more of God. There was a remnant in the earth that was hungry. There was a remnant. And lastly, I close with this point. After This remnant is in the upper room and the Holy Ghost is poured out and they stumble in the streets and they begin to preach about what had just happened. That remnant, those 12, those 12 that turned into 120, that remnant had a desire not to just hold that encounter and that experience for themselves, but share it with the lost world around them. And so Jesus comes through this remnant of the Old Testament. It's this beautiful picture of just a small group of people that survived everything that the nation of Israel went through. And if they didn't make the sacrifices, if they didn't have the discipline that they had, to think that Jesus may not have been born. And so that remnant pushes and persists into the New Testament. And Jesus leaves, but he leaves another remnant behind. And this remnant goes to the upper room and the Spirit is poured out and they have an experience like nothing that has ever happened on earth before. And they go out into the streets because this remnant still desired to bring salvation. This remnant still desired to be life savers like we heard about this morning. Little is much when God is in it. And I believe today in Fredericton, in New Brunswick, in Atlantic Canada, in Canada, in North America, go as far as you want to go, that there is still a remnant in the earth today that is hungry for the moving of the Spirit of God, that is hungry to see lives change, that is hungry for the deeper things of God than what they've ever experienced before. I believe there is a remnant 
that desires that. There was a lady by the name of Harriet Tubman. Maybe you've heard her story. We heard a great message about being a lifesaver this morning. But between 1850 and 1860, Tubman made 19 trips from the south to the north in America following the network we know today as the Underground Railroad. She guided more than 300 people, including her parents and several siblings, from slavery to freedom, earning the nickname Moses for her leadership. Tubman had first encountered the Underground Railroad when she used it to escape slavery herself in 1849. Following a bout of illness and and a death, she decided to escape slavery in Maryland for Philadelphia. She feared that her family would be further uh, severed and was concerned for her own fate as a sickly slave of low economic value. Making use of the Underground Railroad, Tubman traveled nearly 90 miles to Philadelphia. She crossed into the free state of Pennsylvania with a feeling of relief and awe and recalled later, when I found that I had crossed the line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person that I was on the other side. Isn't that just what salvation feels like? When you go down to that watery grave of baptism, when you come up and when you're filled with the Spirit, it's like, am I even the same person? And the answer is, you are not the same person. And so she looks at her hands. She says, am I even the same person? She said, there was such a glory over everything around me. Everything around me began to look different after I was freed. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and it felt like I was in heaven. But here's the most amazing part of Harriet Tubman's story. Not that she escaped slavery and she made it to Pennsylvania and she had freedom for herself. But rather than remaining in the safety of the North, Harriet Tubman made it her mission to rescue her family and others living in slavery via the Underground Railroad. She received many warnings for what she did. But as I said, she wasn't just satisfied with being saved for herself, but she made 19 trips back across and said, I've got to bring somebody else with me. And she saved over 300 people from slavery and bondage and brought them into freedom. She was just one person. She was just a remnant among many. But Harriet Tubman saved over 300 lives from slavery, and generations and generations and generations to come were affected because she said, I'm not just satisfied with being saved for myself, but I've got to go back just for one more. Just for one more. You say, what can God do with just a remnant? Well, I can tell you that it's not just a remnant. It's a remnant. It's a powerful group of people that when they align their focus together, when we unify and unite with one mind and one purpose, that's what the remnant is. And there's nothing, there's nothing that we can't do as a church. There's no miracle too big. There's no family member too lost. What can God do with a remnant? When you read about the Azusa Street Revival, it really started out with about seven 
people. It was William Seymour and seven men waiting on God on Bonnie Bray Street when suddenly, this is a quote, as though hit by a bolt of lightning, they were knocked from their chairs to the floor. And the other seven men began to speak with tongues and shout loud praising God. The news quickly spread. The city was stirred. Crowds gathered. And a few days later, Seymour himself received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Services were moved outside to accommodate the crowds who came from all around. People fell down under the power of God as they approached. People were baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the sick were healed, and sinners received salvation. And beyond that, that remnant of seven people plus William Seymour, the leader, what's most amazing and one of the most significant things about that movement is the unprecedented number of missionaries that left that Azusa Street revival. Within five months of starting, 38 missionaries had gone out from Azusa. 38. What started out with just eight turned into 38 people saying, we've got to go reach other nations. It just started out as a remnant that said, we desire more of God. And they reached the world around them in only two years. It had spread to over 50 nations worldwide. These nations back in the day included China, India, Japan, the Philippines, South Africa, the Middle East, and Liberia. And it all started with just seven or eight people saying, you know what? I think that God has more in store. I think that God wants to do something new. I think that there's more that we can reach for. I think there's more that people are going to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I think that there's more. They were just a remnant. Would you stand with me tonight? And we, the church, just like that remnant in Israel in Isaiah chapter 10 that he prophesied, we, as being the church, we are the remnant of the world around us. There is a remnant. There's a remnant that desires to see lost people saved. There's a remnant that desire to be in the presence of God. There is a remnant. Would you lift your hands with me all over this place and raise your voices? Hallelujah, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that you are raising up a remnant in these last of the last days. Jesus, I believe that you are equipping. I believe that you are strengthening the remnant of your people. God, I believe that you are calling this remnant to deeper places. God, I believe that you are calling this remnant further and further. God, I believe that you are calling this remnant into longer times of prayer. God, into excessive days of fasting. God, I believe that you are calling this remnant for deeper consecration. Would you lift your voice with me tonight? Hallelujah, Jesus. Lord, we desire your presence. God, we desire not just outside these four walls, but inside these four walls to see people receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. God, this remnant desires to see people healed in these altars, in these seats, in these aisles. God, this remnant 
desires to see backsliders come home. God, this remnant desires to see the baptismal waters stirred more often than we do right now. God, this remnant desires the deeper things that you have in store for us. Would you lift up your voices with me? I'm going to turn this over to Pastor Jack now. But would you lift your voices? He.